to quickly uh, introduce you to Charlie. Oh my gosh, that is the <laughs> is that is he a golden doodle? Uh Cavoodle. <gasps> oh, they are the cutest. <laughs> oh my gosh. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Gretchen Rubin, superstar author of many, many books. She's uh, sold over 3 million books. Her, uh, the big breakaway was The Happiness Project, and she also did a Happier at Home. She did a Habits book called Better Than Before. She did the book we just reviewed, The Four Tendencies. And this week, she's launching a brand new book, Out of Order, In a Calm. So we touched on uh, the themes of all of those books you just mentioned, but basically with the long goal of really how to live a happier life, I think they all really relate to. So we hope you enjoyed the interview. I think there is a good chance that you might find a way to get happier, which is big. Well, the first question I wanted to ask was that your work seems to have really resonated with people, uh, in, is happiness something that we all, you know, feel like we don't have enough of? Is it something that everyone seems to be striving for more of? You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that for me, and I think for a lot of people, the bigger challenge is just that we forget to think about it. You know, we're just busy with our everyday lives. We're managing our to-do list, and so we don't stop and think, like, "Am I happy? How could I be happier? What are what's the low-hanging fruit?" for how I could make my life richer and more fun and easier and with less negative emotion. Um, so I, and I do think that for most people, if they stop and think about it, they do see opportunities where they could have deeper engagement with their family or better relationships with their friends, or they could do more to uh, boost their health and their energy. Um, so I think it's a really good thing to stop and think about because for most people there is action that, you know, with things that don't take a lot of time, energy, or money that we can do that will make us happier. Mm. I'd like to uh, see what your opinion of, of what happiness is. So, you know, some of those people who are really busy, working hard, um, they might think that they're getting a lot of meaning out of being so busy at some of their work. Uh, is this something that's different to happiness? And in, in what way do you think? Well, you know, I started my career in law, and so I spent an entire semester arguing about the definition of contract. So I never actually define happiness. Um, it has something like 15 academic definitions. Um, it's a very complex uh, concept. And, you know, people can really just spend endless amounts of time arguing about, well, is well-being the same thing as satisfaction, is bliss the same thing as joy? And so I think for the re the lay person, it's like happiness is whatever you think it is. And so I think a more helpful question is, can I be happier this week, this next month, next year? Are, are there things I could do to be happier? Whatever that is that it would mean for me. Because as you say, for some people, their work is very meaningful and working hard makes them happy. And for other people, their work isn't a very significant part of their happiness. Um, and so I think it's good to leave it loose because then we can all just think about what's important for ourselves. Yeah, nice. And we're keen to ask about the day-to-day the -day stuff, definitely. But in terms of the, the bigger picture stuff, uh, there's a, something you've probably been quoted back uh, a million times, but you said that you'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. Is choosing yep. the, the right job and the, the right project on the, on the grander scale going to be super important to happiness? 
Well, work is very important to happiness, partly because it's just such a big part of our time for most adults. And so having work that you find meaningful, where you have friendships at work, where you feel like you have a boss who is interested in seeing you make progress, um, that's very significant uh, to to happiness. Now, there's some people and where and I and this happened to me and I, it's something that is very common for writers to talk about. But I actually think that m people in many professions experience this where you feel almost a compulsion uh, to follow a certain profession. I, I must write. I mean, even if I weren't getting paid to do it, if nobody read what I wrote, if I had another full time job. I mean, I started as a writer when I did have a full time job. Um, I just feel like I have to do it. And I've spoken to many people who are like, I really felt called to be a kindergarten teacher. Like, I just feel like that's what I have to do. Or I feel like I have to be a doctor. Or I feel like I have, you know. And so I think for those people, if they're not in that profession, it's very painful. Then I think there are people that just want to do good work in the world. You know, they want to be purposeful. They want to contribute. They want to, you know, feel like... They're not part of some awful machinery of arbitrary action, um, you know, and, and so for them, whatever it is, isn't as important as a particular kind of uh, situation. Um, and it's not that one way is better and one way is worse. It's just that people are different in what they're looking for and what they um, are getting out of different work environments. And of course, some people just need to get paid. They want, you know, they, they just, they want, they need the money. And so they're very they want something where they can have the financial security that they need yeah <clears throat> absolutely i think it's uh extremely common for you know everyone to just go with the flow and just follow what you really feel like you're meant to be doing and for you that was law uh for me it was engineering for astro he did you know business commerce and, and so forth so what was the thing that really you know threw cold water on your face to really change the path of your whole life and um, pursue new projects like uh, your happiness project? Well, I was, I did law for exactly that reason. I drifted into it. It was the easy choice. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. It was like, I'm good at research and writing. I can always change my, my mind later. It's great preparation for a lot of different things. So I went to law very, uh, like without a lot of thought. Um, and I had a great experience in law, so I don't regret it at all, but it, I didn't mindfully choose it. And I really switched to writing um, when I was clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, and I was like going for a walk one day at, at, at lunch. And I just for fun, you know, sometimes you ask yourself these rhetorical questions just sort of for, for amusement. And I thought, what am I interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And then all of a sudden it hit me like power, money, fame, sex. And I became completely preoccupied with like researching these subjects and understanding how they fit together and what they meant about human nature. And that turned into my first book. And so for me, it was more like once I had the idea, um, then I felt like, okay, I have to write it. And then once I started working on it, I was like, well, this is the kind of thing that could actually be published as a book. Do you think, I wonder if I can get it published as a book. So I went to the bookstore and got something called, it was a book called uh, like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal, something like that. Mm. And then I just followed the instructions. Um because I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's incredible. There's, and it seems to be like a big element of courage as well to really just jump out and, and go for 
what you're after. Do you think this is something that you recommend for people if they're not liking what they're doing right now that they should just automatically make big changes or is there value in doing some work that you actually, you know, you're not enjoying and you're just slogging it through as well? Well, I think that you have to know yourself and you have to know your situation. There's a great book that was written by a friend of mine, so full disclosure, but it's called The Creative Lawyer. And it's basically about like, say you're a lawyer and you want to switch careers. How can you do that in a kind, in a way that's not highly risky? Because a lot of times people sort of feel like I either stay in this boring job forever or I throw it all away and write the great American novel. It's like, are those really the only options? It's kind of a false <laughs> choice. So like my, I, I was well work doing I had done an, an immense amount of work on my book bef- while I was still working full time doing something else. So it wasn't like I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm done with this and now I'm going to go to this other thing. Um, so I think a lot of times you can find ways to learn more about a profession that you think you might be more drawn to or start it going while you still have your other thing going. You know, n- nowadays there's a huge emphasis on side hustles and there's a great podcast by another friend of mine called Side Hustle School by Chris Gillibo where he talks about how people start side hustles. And the idea is this is for people who don't want to quit their day job, whether they don't want to take the financial risk yet or whether because they just like that job, they want to keep doing it. But they have an idea for something that they want to do on the side, something that's going to make money. This is not a hobby. This is like something where you really think you could make money doing this. And I think that's a really helpful model because for a lot of people, it's not really practical or wise to say, I'm just going to completely go in a new, new direction. Sometimes that's what's required. Like, if you want to be a writer in Hollywood, you cannot do that from Cincinnati, Ohio. You need to be in Hollywood. Um, and so you, at some point, you need to move there. And you're probably better off moving there sooner rather than later. And that might mean a very, very radical change in your life. But that's true sometimes. But sometimes you can, like, get an internship or, you know, um, start a project on the side and see how much you like it. Uh, because... You might not be well suited to it or you might have fantasies about what it's like that isn't really what it's like. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who want to be writers that they kind of like the idea of what it would be like to be a writer, but they're not actually mm-hmm. that interested in writing and they don't really have an idea of what they would want to write. And like, You can't really be a writer if you don't have an idea about what you want to write and the desire to write it. Mm-hmm. Like they just <laughs> sort of like the idea of having written. And I'm like, well, that I get it. But like that is not a job. Without doing the verb. Right, exactly. And so sometimes I think people have fantasies or they're like, oh, I would love to be a wedding photographer. I, you know, I'd, I'd freelance. I'd have all this control of my time. I'd be part of all these joyful celebrations. Well, I don't know what it's like to be a wedding photographer, but I bet it's incredibly stressful because it's like the most important day in people's lives. If you if you screw up, it's totally catastrophic. The people are out of their minds and probably really misbehaving. Uh, there's everything can go wrong. I mean, so you might re- be really well suited to it, or maybe it's not exactly what you thought and, and you want to, you want to adjust that idea. Maybe you'd rather do a different kind of photography, or maybe you want to do a different kind of freelance, you know? So I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of people taking huge risks. The thing about me is one thing I know about myself is I'm really good at execution. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. That's not a problem for me. Um, I don't need accountability. I don't need deadlines. I don't need anybody watching me. Um, that's pretty unusual. That's what my book, The Four Tendencies, is about. Um, is trying Steph to understand. Sounds like an upholder. We got here. Yeah. <laughs> so, but for but for a lot of people, that wouldn't the idea like, oh, I'm just gonna like go off and write a book proposal and try to sell a book. Well, that might not have been very well 
a good way for them to go about it. So I wouldn't say that what works for me is necessarily a template for how other people could succeed. Not that they couldn't get there eventually, but they would need to do it their own way. Like maybe for other people, it'd be very important to join a writer's group where everybody's kind of holding each other accountable. You know, I didn't need that. So I didn't have to have that. For sure. And it's, it's good advice. And we, um, we spoke to Chris Gillibo about 18 months when his uh, Side Hustle book came out. Uh, about yeah. eighteen months ago, and I think that's I think it's that's good advice for um, the the bigger you know the the you know change job or, or starting a new business on the side. But I think it's also similar sort of advice can be applied to smaller things like maybe it's starting a, a new a new diet or a new exercise regime for for some people it might be starting really small or gradually cutting down on something. Whereas for some people it's a the full you know wake up the next day and they're completely changed and they're fully committed to the new way of doing it. Well, I, I absolutely agree, and I write about that uh, in my book, Better Than Before, that's all about habit change, because I think you're exactly right. There's no magic one-size-fits-all solution. Some people want gradual, incremental change. They want to build up their successes. They want to you know, just you know, slowly move in a new direction, and other people are just completely bored by that. They're like, I want to go bigger, but go home, and if I'm not quitting sugar entirely, like I'm just not interested in this undertaking. And sometimes people are like, oh, that's not the right way to do it. I'm like, there's no right, right way. It's whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. If you're attracted to incremental change, like small substitutions and small changes, that's a great way. You can get there. If you want to do everything overnight, you can get there too. And um, and I think that it's a really important point because I think a lot of people are always like, well, what's the right way to do it? What's the best way to do it? It's like, well, there, I can't. we can't say. We can't tell you because it just depends. I'm a person like – I don't eat, I basically don't eat any carbs. I mean, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat flour. I don't eat rice. I don't starchy vegetables. I don't really even eat fruit. Um, and I love it. But would I say that's a way, that's a way to eat that would work for everyone? No, it really works well for me. And I don't like it when people try to tell me that I'm doing it wrong. Cause I'm like, this works great for me. Why, why would I, you know, why, but the, the fact that it doesn't work for you doesn't mean that I can't do it my way. We can all do the way that's right for us. Yeah, it come back comes back to that thing you said earlier about knowing yourself. Uh, something yeah. I've probably done wrong a lot of the time is you know copying habits because I'll be listening to a podcast of like you know Tim Ferriss. You get to meditate every night before you go to bed, and then write a journal and get all your thoughts out on the paper. And you know I did something like that for twelve months, and what I realized was I couldn't get to sleep after just having such an intense experience before uh-huh. I went to bed. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of this popular advice of what your habits should be, you know, doesn't suit everyone and, and we might have specific habits that work for us and that some that don't. So, it's something we might need to go out and uh, find out for ourselves. No, I completely agree. And I think that idea of experimenting and recognizing that something's not working so you can adjust it. Like you could say, well, I'm going to do it in the morning or this doesn't work for me or whatever. Um I I do something that every expert says you shouldn't do. I am a morning person, so I'm really at my most energetic and productive early in the day, and I know that about myself, and I will save work to do first thing in the morning. But the very first thing that I do as soon as I sit at my desk is do my email. And everybody says, don't do your email. That's low-value work. But I'm like, I can't concentrate on anything until I've gone through my email. Like, I have to see... I have to like get up to date. Like, I can't have that unopened mailbox hanging over my shoulder. And so that's what works for me. And the fact that people are like, oh, you should do your, you know, don't waste those valuable hours. I'm like, I wish I didn't have to use it, those valuable hours that way, but I have to. Sort of for you, it's like, 
I see like on paper why this sounds like a good idea, but in practice, it just doesn't work for us. So we mm. got to do it in the way that suits us. I like it. And when it, when we decide, you know, we want to change something, what's your advice around the, the timing of when we should begin to either break a bad habit or install a new good habit? That is a great question. So now is always a good time. Where, yeah. Wherever you are, whenever it is, now is always the right time. As soon as you're ready, begin now. It is true that for many people, beginnings feel auspicious. Like it's very unusual for someone to start a new diet in the middle of the week. You know, people feel like they start on Monday. And there is a special power to New Year's resolutions. Yes, it's an arbitrary date. But for a lot of <laughs> people, there does... Okay, there you go. So you don't like the arbitrariness of it. But there is something that feels auspicious or feels natural about that. Um, and Or a milestone like a birthday um, or like the anniversary of an important occasion, like maybe on the first anniversary of your father's death, you would sort of recommit yourself to healthy exercise or something like that. I can imagine that for people, they would have um, they would tie a, a milestone in their life to some kind of new behavior. And for all of us, um, a great time to maybe one of the best times to start a new habit is when we is what's um, in better than before I call the clean slate. And that's when you've gone through a major transition, like you have a new job or a new relationship, new school, you've moved because old habits are wiped away. And that makes it much easier for those new habits to lock in because you don't have to. You don't have to like fight against what you're, you've already learned, you know, your, your usual pattern because there is no new pattern. So as soon as you, if you're going, like if you're starting a new job, the very first day, the very first week, you want to start the way you want to continue. If your idea is, oh, in this new job, I'm going to go to the gym every day before work. Make sure you do that the very first day, the very first week, and then that mm -hmm. will help that new habit kick in. And that'll just seem like a normal day. If you wait a couple weeks, well, then you're already used to going straight into the office at a certain time and going in earlier starts to feel like, oh gosh, I hate going in earlier. It feels like the day is so much longer because it feels like an imposition. So the clean slate is a really good – and like when people quit smoking, one of the best times to quit smoking is when you've moved to a new home because then you don't have that, oh, I sit down on this table and have my first cup of coffee and a cigarette because you don't have that table anymore because your kitchen is completely different. And so it's it's a great time to do something like, you know, very challenging like quitting smoking. Mm, fantastic. So we've talked about happiness and habits and you've got a, a brand new book coming out now, Out of Order, Inner Calm. And yes. How do, so how does you know this out of order the things around us the clutter how does how do those sorts of things contribute or or detract from happiness? Well, it's interesting. Ever since I started writing about happiness ten years ago, um, I've noticed how people just get very fired up about outer order. Not everybody. Some people truly are clutter blind. I my sister and I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. She's my co-host, and um, we talk a lot about how she's just very messy, and she really is just clutter blind. She doesn't see it. It doesn't bother her. If she lived by herself, she would never close a kitchen cabinet. Again, she doesn't care. <laughs> but for most people, outer order does contribute to inner calm, and even beyond that, it contributes to kind of an, a sense of energy and focus and a possibility. There's something about getting control over the stuff of life that makes us feel more in control of our lives generally. Um, I, I have a friend who said to me, uh, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. <laughs> and I knew exactly how that felt. And it seems kind of disproportionate to me. I mean, part of the reason I was interested in was I was like, this doesn't really make sense because in the context of a happy life, 
something like a crowded coat closet or a messy desk is clearly trivial. We would all say, like, this is not a big deal. And yet over and over, people say, oh, my gosh, when I got control of my desk, I finally felt like I could write that report or I felt lighter and freer. I felt like my mind was energized or I felt like I had 12 hours of sleep. Like people literally feel better in their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also outer order. A lot of times the stuff we have around is like kind of triggering negative feelings in us like, oh, I should read that, but I don't want to. Oh, I should read that, but I don't want to. Or what are those files? I don't know. I should go through them. Or, oh, I bought that thing. I bought that recorder because I thought I was going to start recording notes, but I never have. And so now I feel like I wasted my money and maybe I should start recording notes, but I don't really want to. You know, I wasted my money. I never finished this thing. I never intended, like this thing, I, I have no real use for it. And so you get rid of those things, you get them off your shelves, and you also get them off your conscience. And so you're, you're just free from all of those kind of little pings um, that cause you pain as you go through the day. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's such a weird thing having, when you got a messy desk for me, myself, it, it, you only realize the difference until the day you clean it. And it's, a, it's like a oh. massive weight off your brain. I don't know. I used to always think it was, you know, I heard somewhere, uh, quoted that Albert Einstein always had a messy desk. So I, for about 10 years, <laughs> I, that was my excuse for just having a complete messy room. But yeah, until that day, I had that out of order. It was, it was a massive change in how I worked. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I do, because I'm always looking for, like, what are the little habits we can use to maintain order? Because it's like, it's what we've all had the experience of, like, you spend two hours cleaning up your desk, it looks great, and then two weeks later, it's like nothing ever happened, and it's <laughs> right back to where it was. So, like, what are the little habits that you can do just as part of your regular day? You know, not a lot of taking a lot of time or energy or money to, to do it, but just – and so one thing I like to do, especially in my office, is a 10-minute closer. So at the end of the day, I always – kind of give myself 10 minutes to just, you know, put, for some reason I get out hundreds of pens during the day. I don't know why I can't just use the same pen, but it's like, put all the pens back in the pen cup, take all the dirty dishes out of my office so that I can take them to the kitchen. If I've, you know, a lot of times I'll have like an article that I ripped out because I want to post something about it or I want to take a note. I just go through and do it so I can throw, I can get rid of this paper. I look at my to-do list and see like, are there things I should cross off or things I need to have uh, in mind for the next day? Are there things I printed out that I need to file? Um, and I just get it all sorted out. It takes 10 minutes and it's kind of, it, it's, it's very calming because it's, it's not mentally taxing and it just feels good to kind of put things in their places and see order emerge. And it is great. It feel it's very energizing to see that. And then of course, in the morning, it's much nicer to come into a desk that's like organized and ready and I feel like I can really get focused on starting whatever I need to do in the new day rather than fighting my way through all this kind of detritus that's left over from the day before. But I need to set aside the time for it because otherwise I'm like, why can't I put a pen back in the pen cop as I go? I don't know. What is it with me and pens? I don't know. But, you know, it doesn't really matter. I can just do it at the end of the day. Um, if I have three coffee cups on my desk, I can just get rid of them at the end of the day. Um and and that works great for me. So I because I do think there's something about fighting your way through just like the 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 smog of clutter that just it's it's just discouraging when you're when you're trying to get going on something you know something ambitious or something challenging. Yeah, I'm often accused, um, rightly so, of having too many cups as well. Rather than just mm-hmm. using the same cup, I'll get multiple different cups. And you might think at the 
at the end of the day, oh, you know, I've, I've finished for the day. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm knocking off now. I'm going to go to bed now. And you think I'll, I'll clean those cups up in the morning. But it's a big difference if you, when you wake up and you're fresh and you sit down at the desk and it's clean, ready to go, as opposed to there's three cups in there and a few pens lying around and you're, you're yeah. starting the day with a, a bit of mess. Mm. And making the bed, it I think, is a big stale. one as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Make the bed. Yes. Are you guys bed makers? Uh, I do not. I never do. But um, thankfully, I've got someone who who loves making the bed and and finds mm. it really important to make the bed. Mm. <laughs> I've got a fifty percent strike rate, so I'm not doing too good. Uh, well, it's one of those things where for some people it really really helps them start the day right. Um, but sometimes people are like, "Well, should you make your bed?" I'm like. No, I mean, only if it makes you feel happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. Some people are like, I love not making my bed. And I'm like, well, then that's then there's no reason to make your bed or somebody else is going to make the bed. Then you're like, OK, well, they could do it. And but I don't really care. I mean, um, I, I personally think it's I really like to have the bed made. I don't like to be in a room with an unmade bed. I'll even make a bed in a hotel room on the morning I check out. And I, I posted about that on my site, and somebody's like, oh, you shouldn't do that because it's easier for housekeeping. It's it's not making anything easier for housekeeping. And I'm like, this has nothing to do with me <laughs> trying to help housekeeping, This, which never, frankly, occurred to me. This is me, more about me wanting to be in this hotel room before I leave. And also, by the way, one of the advantages, uh, like a minor but, but, but helpful advantage of outer order is that you're much less likely to lose things. And you don't, um, at least in the United States, they say the average American adult spends 55 minutes looking for misplaced objects a day. Imagine what you could do with an extra <laughs> oh, hour in your day. I can change you might know, be a bit higher than 55 minutes. <laughs> right. So it's like if you're, if things are, are, are cleaner, it's just easier to see things because, We've all done the thing where, like, you put down the important piece of paper and then somebody puts a pile of stuff on it and then it just gets lost or gets stuck or it gets moved someplace completely unexpected. Whereas if all you have on a counter is one piece of paper and then you're like, oh, this piece of paper needs to get mailed. I think I will mail it. You just you have a lot less stress in your life. And in hotel rooms, um, my husband was in a hotel room and he left his iPad because he had put it on the bed. And then while he was in bed, he was looking at it. Then he put it on the bed covers and then he got out of the bed. So he threw, you know, the coverlet back, neatly covering the iPad and then never thought to look for it again. <laughs> Whereas if you'd made and I said, if you'd made the bed, you would have seen the iPad sitting right there. Um, or, you know, the socks or whatever might be, um, but again, there's no magic to it. I like it for me. It makes my life feel easier and, and, uh, more organized. But, um, if people are like, I refuse to make the bed. Okay. Whatever works for you. I think I'm getting all the positive happiness benefits of coming home to a freshly made bed without actually ever having to make the bed, which is, uh, I think I'm winning both there. Um, but I think that, that there's some good practical ones. And another one uh, I really liked, which I think people should definitely start doing is the, the one minute rule. Can you tell us about that one? Yes, this is, this is a rule that sounds so modest that it's surprising how effective it is. Many people have told me that they think this is like the most helpful strategy of all the ones in the book so the one minute rule is that there's if there's anything you can do in less than a minute you should just go ahead and do it without delay so if you can hang up your coat instead of throwing it over the arm of a chair if you can print out a document and file it um you want to just go ahead and do that and what it does is it gets rid of those tiny tasks that are kind of the scum on the surface of life it turns out that a lot of stuff really doesn't take that much time if you just do it as you go 
And over the course of even a short time, like a week, you start seeing a really massive difference in just the low level tasks that need to be done. And often we, it, it feels like when there's a lot of little things to be done, we feel like it's harder to do the big things. That's not really rational, but that's often how it feels. And if you get rid of all those little things, again, without taking a lot of time and energy, this is not about taking an afternoon and cleaning out the kitchen or something. This is just like, oh, I'll just put this can opener back in the drawer rather than leave it on the counter. You know, it's not a big deal. But over time, that kind of consistent habit of minor orderliness really contributes to um, a much more orderly environment. Yeah, that's incredible. It's I think it's huge. So that's a lot of the the little things for the with the one minute rule. What about knocking off the kind of bigger things? You know, paying the bills, these kind of things that are a pain in the ass. That just like just just increasing clutter through the weeks. How do you go about best tackling those kind of clutter? Well, mail, again, I don't want to say there's one best way, but I myself, I will say what I do and I love my system. And so this is something to think about. One thing about mail is a lot of people just leave it in a stack and they just wait for the stack to get very high. And then finally they like force themselves to deal with it and it feels very insurmountable. And that's how bills get like mis you know misplaced or or aren't paid on time or you miss important inv- invitations things like that so i think a really helpful habit that is very easy um is to every time the mail comes go through it and if there's stuff that needs to be recycled recycle if there's stuff that you need to open and see like is the you know sometimes like at least with my credit card i'm like is this a bill that's important or is this just some like random advertisement that they're trying to make look like a bill to get me to open it, which I did because I can't tell if it's a bill or not. Look at and then throw that away. And so you get rid of all the stuff that you don't need and then you're left with a much smaller pile because it's really the most important things. And then I put those in a drawer because then they're safe because if they're out on a counter, anything can happen. If they're in it, like I have a special slot this it's just an open space where I just put the thing and then when the pile gets high enough I just sit down and and pay the bills now some people might need to do it like every Sunday night at eight o'clock um, something that can work really well for people is pairing and pairing is when you take something that you want yourself to do like pay bills and you pair it with something that you love to do um, and so let's say you love to wa- watch old episodes of Friends, the TV show. You could say to yourself, okay, every Sunday night at 8 p.m., I am going to watch two episodes of Friends. And while I watch the episodes of Friends, I will pay the bills. And it's like I can't watch Friends unless I'm paying the bills. Um, but it'll make it'll make it more fun, and I'll kind of look forward to it. And I'll be like, oh, Sunday night, it's time for friends, and that means I need to pay the bills. So pairing, and, and it could be anything that you want. It might be a podcast that you love, or an audiobook, or music. If you if there's maybe a certain kind of music that you really like, you save it, and then you just pair it with an activity. Um, That's sick. And then that. and then all oh and then also you know a lot of people if you have trouble with b- bills and and you were we were talking about the four tendencies before this is particularly difficult for rebels. Rebels do not like to pay bills. We know none <laughs> of us like to pay bills, but rebels have trouble paying bills. Just do auto pay. You know, do auto pay. Put everything on auto pay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do auto pay because I like to look at my bills, but it's like if you're not paying your bills or you just can't bear to do it. Just take the time and set it up so you don't have to. Um, nice. If it's a problem, solve it that way. I think that's good advice. We're going to ask about some of your favorite books in a sec as our last question, but 
You might have heard a couple. Yes. Of, you might have heard a couple of um, of dog barks here. Dogs yes, probably, I love. <laughs> dogs probably aren't the best for uh, for podcasting, but I know you've got uh, your your black cockapoo Barnaby. Um, yes. How, how do you think? Uh, just a, a quick convo on how dogs can uh, add to happiness. Well, it's the research is very very strong that dogs add a lot to happiness. Um, it's a relationship, and relationships make us happier. Also. People who have dogs are healthier, um, and people who walk their dogs regularly get more exercise than people who join gyms. Because the thing about a dog is a dog has to be walked. You know, it's not your dog is not interested. Like, oh, the weather's bad, or I don't feel like going, or oh, I was so good yesterday. I went. I think I should take today off. It's like we're going today. <laughs> like we're gonna go right now. Um, and so, and they, and also, um, people who have dogs in their house have stronger immune systems because dogs track in, you know, germs and dirt. And it turns out that actually is good for the immune system. Um, but they're fun, you know, they're lively. They're, they're a wonderful, quiet presence, um, in a household. Um, and there's a kind of, uh, wordless companionship that is very, uh, it's very pleasing. One thing that's interesting to me in talking to people about happiness, like I love having a dog, but it wasn't like I was, I wasn't craving a dog. I wasn't yearning for a dog. And my daughter was yearning for a dog. And then that's why we got one. But there's a sizable number of people really for whom life is not, they don't feel like they're living their best life if they don't have a dog or a cat or like sometimes it's even something like a horse. Um, some people are just really horse people. And for them, that kind of, that element in their life is very important. Just the way for some people, music is very important um, or nature is very important. And so I think it's something to recognize about yourself. If you feel like, you know, I, I feel like my life isn't complete unless I have an animal in my life. Um that's really important mm. to respect that about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, this is our, the dog we got here. It's one of the best dogs going around. Astro's <laughs> done very well on Aww. that. It's very cute. So, uh, yeah, as Astro uh, briefly alluded to, uh, we always ask our guests what their favorite and most influential books have been. So, what have been the most influential on yourself in your career and your journey? Mm, so many. I'm a huge reader. I love, love, love to read. There's like a thousand books that have changed my life. Um, the book that I most often give as a gift um, that I'm always trying to push on people is a book called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander. And this is a very strange book, um, which looks at all across history and across the world to try to identify what it is about certain spaces that are pleasing to people. Mm. Um, not things like Baroque architecture, but things like cascade of roofs, half wild garden, terrace overlooking life, sleeping to the east, child cave, secret place. And I just find this book mesmerizing. It completely changed the way I look at the world and um, understand what pleases me about a space. And it's just a brilliant book. It's fascinating. You don't have to really read it from beginning to end. It's more like you flip through it. It's very kind of poetic. Mm. Um, so I love that book. That's very um, popular book- among uh, – I'm a structural engineer, and I know that's very popular among oh. architects out there. Which yeah. have been influential in, in shaping a lot of our buildings. Well, it's interesting because – to some people, it's enormously famous and culty, and then many people have never heard of it at all. So it's one of those kinds of books. So I love I love finding that kind of book where people yeah. are like, oh, my God, it's the most famous book in the world. Um, 
a book that I uh, a book that changed my life for sure, my personal life, and then also uh, gave me a lot of insight into habit change. Is a book called Why We Get Fat by Gary Tobbs. Um, this is a book uh, where it's all about insulin and, and the the role of insulin in the body. My sister is a type one diabetic, so I was very, always very interested in t- wanting to learn more about insulin, which is why I read the book. Um, but I read this book, and overnight, I changed 100% the way I eat. And I had, and that was like that was in 2012. Um, so it was a, it was quite some time ago, and like that has just got me off sugar 100%. Sugar, flour, starch, rice, all that. Uh, overnight. And I write about this in Better Than Before because as the strategy of the lightning bolt, when you just like you get a new idea and all of a sudden all these habits change. It's like I couldn't quit smoking my whole life, but bam, I got pregnant and then I quit. Mm. Or, you know, I, I I was always a big drinker. I, oh, I would never give up drinking. Now I'm a father. I have to quit drinking because um, I have to be I have to be here for the long term for my son or or whatever. So I read. I, so that is a book that I tell everyone to read. It's very, very readable. It's in a way, it's very non-controversial because the role of insulin in the body is not controversial. Um, but mm. it totally changed my life. Totally changed my father's life, actually, That's... too. Because after I did it, he did it, and he was actually, you know, he he was an older man that had all of the traditional problems that those kind of guys have, and it was literally the kind of thing where his cardiologist was like. Well, Jack, what have you done? Because <laughs> everything in the space of six months became so remarkably better and improved. Um, it's such that it was kind of uh, mind blowing. The amazing thing about books, Gresham, you, you talked about that lightning bolt. Sometimes you read a book yeah. and it really just oh. slaps you up in such a big way that it really causes the habit change. For me, my favorite book of all time, the most influential, is Alan Carr, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. And, you know, mm. I was a pack a day smoker. The cost of that over a lifetime plus the years lived, you know, books can really change people's lives. and uh, They can. And like your books, The Happiness Project, if that can just make just a few people change how they approach their lives, I mean, it's a very big deal. So uh, thank you so much for all the work and all the books you've written. And we're looking forward to the release of your new book, which comes out uh, today, being Wednesday in Australia, is that right? Yeah, whereabouts, yes, whereabouts can um, can people find more about the book and, and more about you? Uh, if, if I have a website, GretchenRubin.com, and there's tons of information there about the books and my podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and also like discussion guides and checklists and all kinds of free resources for anything. And I post there a lot about kind of my adventures in happiness and good habits. And I have a podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where I talk about how to be happier with my sister, um, who's a big TV writer in Hollywood. And I'm all over social media. Uh, just My handle is just Gretchen Rubin, my name. Um, and I love to hear from readers and listeners and viewers um, and about people's insights or questions or observations or recommendations or everything. So, so check it out and uh and hit me up awesome fantastic thank you so much thank you it's so fun to talk to you you're a legend thank you 